Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 393rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. Of course, we know them as AHIMA. AHIMA represents health information professionals who are stronger through collaboration. As advocates and educators, they are dedicated to your growth. Get connected at ahima.org. Joining me this morning as my co-host is the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. (laughs) Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. We continue our new series here at ICD-10 Monitoring Talk Tuesday. It's called 10 Going on 11. It's all about ICD-11. And this morning we're going to focus on data mining. It's a must-have skill for coders in ICD-11. I know, and reporting on data mining will be Lolita Jones. Lolita Jones and ICD-10 Monitor are launching a new educational program on data mining, and Lolita is going to be joining us later in the broadcast. Talk about that. And former CMS career professional Stanley Knox is going to report on the latest regulatory news coming out of Washington. And also on the broadcast this morning will be Terry Fletcher. Terry will be reporting on coding and documenting debridement. Lori Johnson is going to have the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report, and you have a talkback segment. What are you going to be talking about today? I'm finishing up my observations and thoughts about coding clinic quarter three. Mm, very interesting. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by AHIMA, representing health information professionals, stronger through collaboration. As advocates and educators, they're dedicated to your growth. Get connected at ahima.org. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the finalized 2020 physician rates and conversion factors that are effective for January 1st. The finalized current 2020 conversion factor is $36.09, a slight increase of $0.05 over the current year 2019 PFS conversion factor of $36.04. Medicare telehealth services are also uh, new as for current year 2020. They added the following codes to the list of telehealth services, HCPCS codes G2086, G2087, and G2088, which describe a bundled episode of care for the treatment of opioid use disorders. On evaluation and management services, consistent with their goal to reduce burden, they aligned E&M coding with changes adopted by the American Medical Association's current procedural terminology, or CPT, editorial panel for office, outpatient, and E&M visits. The CPT coding changes retain five levels of coding for established patients, reduce the number of levels to four for office, outpatient, E&M visits for new patients, and revise the code definitions. The CPT code changes also revise the times and medical decision-making process for all the codes and require performance of history and exam only as medically appropriate. The CPT code changes also allow clinicians to choose the E&M visit level based on either medical decision-making or time. They adopted the AMA Specialty Society Relative Value Scale Update Committee recommendations for values of office outpatient E&M visit codes for the current year 2021 and the new add-on CPT code for prolonged service time. The AMA RUC recommended values will increase payment for office, outpatient, and EM visits. 
The committee also committee, committee recommendations reflect a robust service approach by the AMA, including surveying more than 50 specialty types and demonstrating that office outpatient E&M visits are generally more complex and require additional resources for most clinicians. They also are strengthening the Medicare-specific payment for outpatient office E&M visits for primary care and non-procedural specialty care that was finalized in accordance with the current year 2019 PFS final rule. They simplified this payment by using a single add-on code describing the work associated with visits that are part of ongoing comprehensive primary care or visits that are part of ongoing care related to a patient's single, serious, or complex chronic condition. This will all be implemented in 2021. CMS is not adopting the changes to the global surgery codes and they're continuing to evaluate the data. Physician supervision requirements for physician assistants. They updated the regulations for physician supervision of PAs to give PAs greater flexibility to practice more broadly in the current healthcare system in accordance with state law and state scope of practice. In the absence of any state rule, CMS is finalizing a revision to the current supervision requirements to clarify that physician supervision is a process in which the PA has a working relationship with one or more physician to supervise the delivery of healthcare services. Such physician supervision is evidenced by documenting the PA's scope of practice and indicating the working relationship the PA has with a supervising physician when furnishing professional services. Under the review and verification of medical record documentation, to reduce the burden, CMS is finalizing broad modifications to the documentation policy so that physicians, physicians assistants, and advanced practice registered nurses and certified nurse midwives and registered nurse anesthetists can review and verify sign and date rather than redocumenting notes made in the medical record by other physicians, residents, medical medical assistants and APRN students, nurses, or other members of the medical team. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 monitor national correspondent. This is Tuesday. It's November the 12th, 2019, and you're listening to the 393rd Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays and brought to you today by AHIMA. Stand by. Are you appropriately reporting every valid CC and MCC condition? Regardless of experience, many coders and clinical documentation integrity specialists struggle to identify clinical indicators required to qualify a diagnosis as a CC or an MCC. Missed or misreported CCs and MCCs pose significant threats to revenue and compliance. Some CCs and MCCs, such as acute tubular necrosis, acute post-op respiratory insufficiency, and severe malnutrition, are especially challenging. But now you can gain valuable insights into reporting a valid CC or MCC condition, including the criteria that qualify a diagnosis to be considered an additional diagnosis. Register now to attend Keys to Capturing and Validating 2020 CCs and MCCs. This important webcast is Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. It features Dr. William Hake. Register, use the upcoming webcast tab in today's broadcast, and save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY. Here now is Lori Johnson with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. I've been reporting on e-cigarette vaping-associated lung injury, or EVALI, for a couple of months now. There was some news that the CDC released on Friday, November 8th. 
the CDC completed an analysis of bronchoalveolar lavage specimens of 27 patients. 72% of the patients were male, and the median age was 23 years of age. Two of the patients died. Vitamin E acetate was detected in all BAL specimens. 23 patients reported using THC, while 20 reported using THC-containing products. THC, or its metabolites, were reported in 23 samples. Nicotine metabolites were detected in 16 specimens. This report was the first identification of a potential cause vitamin E acetate for valley. Additional studies are needed to establish a definite link between valley and vitamin E acetate. According to the November 8th briefing by the CDC, there are 2,051 cases of valley reported by 49 states, the District of Columbia, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. There are 39 reported deaths as of 11-5-19, which is two more deaths than last week's report. The trend of new cases is decreasing. There are plans to discuss this issue in a Senate committee this week. The CDC also did a survey of adults in Illinois who use e-cigarettes or vaping products. A comparison group was needed to continue their investigation. 4,631 adults responded to the CDC survey, um, and those patients or those people were not eValley patients. 94% used nicotine-containing products compared with 21% using THC-containing products. THC use was more prevalent among the younger respondents. Males reported more frequent use, up to five times more than females. The next step was to look at respondents who used THC-containing products and did not have eValley in the same group. What they found was eValley patients were more likely to exclusively use THC compared to survey respondents. eValley patients more likely to obtain THC products from informal resources. eValley patients use THC products more frequently. The CDC continues to recommend not to use e-cigarettes or vaping products using THC and not to obtain any e-cigarette or vaping products from informal sources. They would like the public to avoid all e-cigarette or vaping for now. The federal government is planning to increase the legal age to purchase e-cigarettes from 18 to 21. And we've also seen in the news that Juul has stopped selling mint-flavored pods, which was the most popular product among teens. So there's more to come on this issue. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Now is the time for RegWatch, featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Nockerson. Good morning, Stanley. A lot of news coming out of Washington these days. What do we need to know? Well, I'm a week late on uh, this report. CMS has been quite busy issuing payment rules for the calendar year 2020. As you may recall, I reported in August the inpatient hospital and several other rules were issued for the fiscal year that began October 1st. 
Now the rest of the rules for the years beginning January 1st have been issued, and we have a complete set of Medicare payment rules for all provider types. Of the greatest interest is probably the physician payment and quality program rule. Uh, earlier this morning, Tim reported on a lot of the coding updates uh, that were contained in this rule, uh, but there are also some major changes to the quality payment program. So CMS is continuing to adjust weights and performance measures for the 2020 performance period for physicians, which will be used to adjust their payment rates in 2022. The new performance threshold has been raised to 45 points, meaning, meaning it'll be harder to uh, become a better performer. The additional performance threshold for the absolute excellence in performer is up to 85 points. The quality performance category is now weighted at 45%. No change from the previous year. This is different than the proposed rule, which tried to shift some of the weight to cost. CMS decided not to move weights from quality to cost, but keep them the same as they were in uh, payment year 2019. So quality performance is weighted at 45%. Cost performance category is weighted at 15%. The promoting interoperability performance category, basically the the prior EHR category, is now weighted at 25%, no change from last year. And the practice improvement activities category is weighted and continues to be weighted at 15%. Now, in this final rule, CMS also noted that they are finalizing the MIPS value pathways which is a participation framework beginning in 2021 performance period, they want to continue to engage with stakeholders to, to co-develop these pathways to align with the goal of moving away from siloed performance category activities and measures and moving towards a set of measure options that are more relevant to a clinician's scope of practice and more meaningful to patient care. So it'll be interesting to see what happens for 2021. CMS also issued the CY 2020 Medicare Hospital Outpatient Prospective Payment System and Ambulatory Surgical Center Payment Final Rule. Some of these major provisions include continuing to phase in the policy to eliminate the payment differential for clinic visits between hospital outpatient clinics and physician offices, the removal of the total hip arthroplasty, six spinal surgical procedures, and certain anesthesia services from the inpatient-only list, that makes these procedures eligible to be paid by Medicare in the hospital outpatient setting as well as the inpatient setting. They added total knee arthroplasty, knee messiaplasty, six additional coronary intervention procedures, and 12 procedures with new CPT codes to the ASC-covered procedure list so that these procedures can be performed in an ambulatory surgical center. And they finalized uh, changes to the hospital outpatient quality reporting and ambulatory surgical center quality reporting programs to further meaningful measurement and reporting for quality of care in the outpatient surgical setting while limiting burden. Dr. Reamer, I will turn it back to you. Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockhamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockhamson Advisors, LLC. Joining us now for our Tuesday Focus is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. As a professional coder and auditor, one of the most confusing and erroneous CPT reporting I see is coding for wound debridement. Wound debridement is a medical procedure that removes infected, damaged, or dead tissue to promote healing. 
the debridement is generally associated with injuries, infections, wounds, and ulcers, but it also is a procedure that may be part of fracture care as well and separately payable. To better understand how to properly code for wound debridement, you first have to look at why debridement is performed and how it's accomplished. TPT codes 11042 to 11047 describe the work performed during wound excisional debridement. An excisional debridement can be performed at a patient's bedside or in the emergency room, operating room, or physician's office. Some key elements to look for in the documentation are the technique used, the instruments used, the nature of the tissue being removed, the appearance and size of the wound, and the depth of the debridement. To determine the proper code choice, first consider the depth of the debridement. This is determined by the deepest depth of the removed tissue. Keep in mind the wound may extend to the bone, but if only subcutaneous tissue is removed, the depth of the debridement is to the subcutaneous tissue only. The second aspect of picking the proper wound debridement code is determining the surface area of the wound. If the entire wound surface has been debrided, the surface area is determined by the square centimeters of the wound after the debridement has been completed. If only a portion of the wound is debrided, report only the measurement of that area actually debrided. So for an example, a patient with a four centimeter by four centimeter ulcer on his calf requires debridement of necrotic subcutaneous tissue. After the debridement is complete, the area measured five centimeter by five centimeter. Because the whole area was debrided, we code based on the final measurement of 25 square centimeters. The codes for this case are 11042 and 11045. Let's take the same patient that has a four by four centimeter ulcer on his calf, but over half of the ulcer was healing. The surgeon states that she debrided necrotic tissue on a one by one centimeter section. Code selection is based on the one square centimeter. This code for the case would be 11042. Wound care management directs us for active wound care, codes 97597 to 97598 for debridement of the skin, epidermis and dermis only. Selective debridement of the removal of non-viable tissue with no increase to wound size and typically no bleeding because the tissue is removed that is non-viable. Non-selective wound debridement is usually done by brushing, irrigation, scrubbing, or washing of devitalized tissue, necrosis, or sloth. In non-selective wound debridement, the focus goes beyond the non-viable tissue. So for an example, the patient has a pressure ulcer, the physician examines the ulcer and uses a pressure water jet to debride the skin and a shard from the wound. The wound is left open to continue healing. This is an example of selective wound care, codes 95797 to 95798. In fracture debridement codes, 11010 to 11012, these are based on, based on depth of tissue removed and whether any foreign material was removed at the same time. Repeat debridement may also be necessary in certain, certain circumstances for when a staged or planned debridement during the usual post-operative period follow-up of the original procedure, and it's important to make sure that you know your proper modifiers. So for an example, a patient was in an automobile accident and sustained an open fracture of the left femur. On the day of the accident, the patient was brought to the OR and the open fracture was debrided of all necrotic tissue and debris. Under floral guidance, the physician was able to manipulate the bone to create an ample reduction. The debridement code 11010 along with the open fracture code 27269 would both be reported. Two days later, the patient was returned to the OR and the dressing removed. The surgeon examined the open fracture and irrigated the wound as saline. An area of three centimeter by four centimeter was dark and dusky looking. The subcute tissue and skin was excised with a number 15 blade to bleeding tissue. Some non-viable muscle tissue was also debrided. The area was then copiously irrigated and a dressing placed. 
Coding for the second debridement is 11011 with a 58 modifier for a stage procedure. I'll be presenting a webcast expanding on this topic January 8, 2020. Check out icdmonitor.com and ICD10 University for the upcoming schedule, and we'll also have an article this week on debridement coding and reimbursement. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor, Terry Fletcher. Chuck? What's the must-have skill that all coders need to master now and in the future? While standing by with the answer to that question, along with comments, is our next guest, Lolita Jones. She'll be here in 60 seconds. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. The American Hospital Association's Coding Clinic on ICD-10 CMPCS is an official coding resource and is vital for all healthcare settings. As an official coding resource, the Coding Clinic is recognized by regulators and auditors alike. Every coder and coding auditor needs the guidance and advice of the Coding Clinic. Now, ICD-10 Monitor offers an updated webcast series on the 2019 Coding Clinic. It's led by two national coding professionals, Glorianne Bryant and Pam Scott. You'll learn the latest updates from the Coding Clinic, and you'll receive insight on specific diagnoses and procedures included in each quarter. And now, all four quarters are available on demand at the ICD University Bookstore. We continue our new series here at ICD-10 Monitor and talking to Tuesday called 10 Going on 11. It's all about ICD-11. And this morning, we're going to focus on data mining. It's a must-have skill for coders in ICD-11. Author, educator, consultant Lolita Jones is here now to report on data mining. Good morning, Lolita. Welcome back. Thank you, Chuck. As many of you know, coding has long been considered to be the signature skill set um, for the HIM profession. But our new signature skill set is quickly becoming data mining, due in large part to some changes in the Health Information Technology, or HIT, associate degree level programs, and definitely due to um, what ICD-11 will bring to the table. No later than September 2021, all of the HIT associate degree programs that are accredited by the Commission on Accreditation for Health Informatics and Information Management Education, or KHEM, as they're affectionately called, um, any associate degree program that's accredited by KHEM will have to elect to teach either a revenue management track and or a data management track. And this is a change because currently and in the past, our HIT associate degree programs have primarily focused on revenue management training, where they pretty much focus on preparing students to go into medical coding and reimbursement. Now that those programs will have to choose either revenue management and or data management track, that's going to definitely change our profession, for, definitely for the good. And this um, change really came about because after HEMA did some research as they looked at, you know, what is HIM going to look like in the future, they found that data management skills were a must-have. In terms of ICD-11, we're actually going to benefit from this change in the um, two-year degree programs because at a recent ICD-11 expert roundtable in Washington, D.C., um, a government official stated, and I quote, coders will become auditors of computed codes and guardians of the code data quality, end quote, under ICD-11. So coders are going to need the data management skills that the HIT programs will provide in the future. So let's talk about quickly, you know, what do we mean by data mining? You probably heard the term. The best definition I found is from um, Bellevue College where they state 
Data mining is the sorting through the data to identify patterns and establish relationships. Relationships might be association when one event is connected to another event, or sequence when one event leads to an, uh, another later event, or classification, discovering new patterns by assigning items in a collection to a target category or class. Data mining might also be clustering, identifying and grouping related facts that weren't previously known. And my personal favorite, data mining might involve forecasting, identifying patterns in data which lead to reasonable predictions. In the series that we're going to have um, entitled Medical Coding Data Mining, I'm going to focus heavily on data mining forecasting, um, give you data mining rules where you can pretty much mine your databases to look for uh, what may potentially be inaccurate um, ICD-10 or CPT or even HCPCS level 2 code patterns. So, for example, if you find that coders are reporting a CPT code for partial mastectomy 19301, and on that same account they're reporting a code for adjacent tissue transfer 14,000 or 14,001, that's definitely a problem because we have a guideline from the AMA that states all partial mastectomies include adjacent tissue transfer. So in the article, we definitely plan on sharing some data mining rules with you, getting you ready for ICD-11, but in the meantime, also helping you to navigate all of the other coding systems that we're currently using. Thank you, Lolita. That was Lolita Jones. Lolita is an author, educator, and consultant. Now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features your own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what do you have to say? We are going to continue exploring Coding Clinic 2019 Quarter 3. We're running a little behind today, so I'm only going to hit a few points, and I suggest you check out my article, which will be posted later in ICD-10 Monitor. Uh, a question was asked regarding progression of preeclampsia from mild to severe and what the appropriate code assignment and POA indicator would be. The advice was to pick up the most severe stage during the encounter and to assign POAY because the preeclampsia had been present on admission. It offends my sensibilities that coding rules are not applied consistently. Why should there be two different stage codes with two different POA indicators for pressure ulcers, but this is the advice for preeclampsia? Either always have two codes with the appropriate severity stages and the corresponding POA indicators, or always pick up the most severe stage and the POA indicator reflects whether or not the condition was present on admission initially, regardless of progression. If they can't do that, at very least, if a patient has a pressure ulcer in the same site present on admission, if it progresses to a higher stage, the hack designation should be nullified. You know, there, there is some contribution of the patient's protoplasm to whether a pressure ulcer is going to continue. It's not always that we did something that caused the pressure ulcer to continue to progress. Um, on page 13, there are two questions regarding pyelonephritis and kidney stones with apparent conflicting advice. And this, to me, is a coding clinical disconnect. In the first case, pyelonephritis with bilateral non-obstructive renal calculi are noted on CT scan. The indexing for pyelonephritis with acuity unspecified mandates exclusively using the code for the calculus, and the questioner is puzzled. The stone was not the reason for admission. The kidney infection was. 
Although serving as a nidus for infection, surely kidney stone as a sole diagnosis does not tell the whole story. In the next related question, the patient has acute pyelonephritis and nephrolithiasis, and the advice is to use two codes, N10 acute pyelonephritis and N20.0 calculus of kidney. Coding Clinic points out that there is no excludes one prohibition. These are the correct diagnoses for both patients, but the coding instructions prevent obtaining the correct codes in the first case. If guidance leads you to a code that seems wrong, you should do more research and sometimes may need provider clarification. Our goal is to accurately depict the patient encounter. The proper action for the coder acetus isn't to just pick up the N20.0 because the guidance says so. They should query for the acuity of pyelonephritis, thereby permitting the acute, the accurate capture, sorry, not acute, the accurate capture of both conditions and both codes. So I'm going to end it there, and please check out my article when it's posted. Thanks. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Erica. That's going to be a wrap for our 393rd edition of Talk Dead Tuesday, and I want to thank our panelists today, Terry Fletcher, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Stanley Nockerson, our special guest, Alita Jones, and of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all the Talk Dead Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and of course, it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play, and when you do, rate us, give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor Talk Dead Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.